Morning. You guys can take a seat. Well, uh, my introductory thought as we approach Daniel 2 this morning, if you want to turn to Daniel 2, you can go ahead and do that right now, is not something new. It's something you hear every single day. It's something we all know about, and it's the, the, the water we swim in, the air we breathe right now, pretty much, right? If you talk to anybody, you know... It's not a surprise that most, if not everyone, would say this is the most divisive time any of us has ever lived through, ever. There's a global pandemic. You know that, and you know how divisive it is. You've seen it constantly. You know that there's people being murdered right now in the streets for what they believe about Black Lives Matter. You know that there's cities on fire. You know that we're on the cusp of maybe the most controversial presidential election we've all seen. You know that. And that the day after the votes are tallied, there's likely probably going to be rioting in the streets, no matter who wins. We live in a super divided time, the tumultuous and somewhat despairing time. I mean, that's what 2020 is the meme of, right? Like, oh man, this is, if 2020 was, you know, something terrible. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just become almost a joke how, how, much, how much we've been seeing so many things that have brought us down and further down and more angry and more toxic. And it just is, it seems constant. And there can be this, this attitude of growing pessimism, that as it continues, as the conversation continues, we could become so tired of it all and so frustrated with it all that it could just seem like things are just sinking deeper and deeper and darker and darker and farther away. And the things that we loved about the past are unraveling. And just there could just be this pessimistic smog in the air. But that's not our reality. In Christ. And as we just heard from the word, Christ is King, as we just sang multiple times, Christ is King and will never be dethroned. And I pray that we would see that truth in Daniel 2 this morning and that that would lift our hearts to hopefulness and optimism for how God is working in these times in our lives. So we're in Daniel. Uh, we're in the second chapter of Daniel. We're going to be going through a chapter each week. Uh, if you don't know, the, the setting of the book of Daniel is when the Israelites are in exile. So the Babylonian Empire has gone and they've conquered Israel and Judah. And they've taken the people of Israel and Judah and spread them out throughout many different parts of their nation. So that way, they, as they're dispersed, they can't be unified together. Uh, kind of just dis degrading them as a people, totally trying to dismantle them as a nationality at all. And uh, some of the people that they've exiled, the, the promising youth of uh, Judah, they've brought to Babylon to serve as wise men in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And that's where we find Daniel and his friends. And they have uh, tried to enculturate them, and they've tried to brainwash them, and tried to make them fit in line. But we see that even last week, as Mark taught, 
um, that Daniel and his friends, through dependence on God, stood out for God's glory instead of the ob- and instead of what was supposed to be happening as sinking in to being just a, another Babylonian, and that God used that to bring him glory, and that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a, a great theme of this book of Daniel, is that God uses this circumstance to, to bring him glory, specifically in how much greater they were than the other youths that were brought in, right? So God wants to be brought glory in a specific way, I think, through the book of Daniel, in being greater. Like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of passages in the Bible where God wants to be shown as great, which he is. He's, totally, he's the greatest. But... In the book of Daniel, God wants to be shown as greater. He wants to be compared to this powerful Babylonian kingdom that is godless and shown to be greater than anything it can muster. And God wants to be shown as greater, I think, in Daniel chapter 2 this morning. So we're going to read Daniel chapter 2. I will warn you, it is a long one. So I'm going to break it up into two sections. So uh, read with me in Daniel chapter 2. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me because you see that... Uh, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time changes. Therefore, tell me the dream and I will show you uh, and and I shall know you can show me its interpretation. That Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magicians or enchanters or Chaldeans. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was very angry and furious and commanded that the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time when he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek 
from God, the God of heaven, concerning mercy, concerning the wisdom or the mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God and my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the, king, the, the, the king's matters. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to, thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the king the known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, "Are you able to make known to me the dream I have seen and its interpretation?" And Daniel answered the king and said, "No wise men, enchanter, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries." And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So God wants to be shown as greater. The first, in this first section, we're going to pause there after verse 30, and we're going to look at how God wants to be greater than the wisdom and the ability of man. So clearly the scenario is this, that Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream that he can't understand, and he wants interpretation from it. So he calls in all the wise men that he thinks will be able to handle it. And he says, I need you not only to tell me the, the interpretation of the dream, I need you to tell me the dream, and then I'll know your interpretation of the dream is accurate. And they say, that's ridiculous. No one can do that. that that's, that's impossible. And he says, you're just trying to lie to me and buy time until my mind changes. You don't know the interpretation. So if you're not going to tell me what's the, the truth, then I'm just going to have you torn limb from limb and have your houses burned down. And they're like, God, that's impossible. That what? And so there's this, this, this mandate that's, that's called out by King Nebuchadnezzar to go destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel hears about it, and he goes to seek the king and tell him the interpretation. Can you, you can only imagine. Now, I'm not saying this is how it plays out in Babylon. I'm saying you can imagine how this scenario would play out in our current United States of America, Right? So there would be the group that is pro-Nebuchadnezzar. They're like, yeah, he's right. Why should these guys sit in the temple and soak up all of the, or in the palace and soak up all the good resources of our government when they're not even able to tell him the truth? 
They're worthless. Let's get rid of them. Let's destroy them. And then there would be the other group that'd be like, whoa, he's, our, our king has lost his mind. He's crazy. I can't believe he would ask something so impossible. That's, that's absolutely absurd. There'd be these two camps that would, that would form, wouldn't there? But Daniel, he doesn't choose a side. Not that that was super common in that culture to be picking the sides one way or another. But he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily assign one of these as right solutions. He, uh, he actually totally honors Nebuchadnezzar's decision to destroy them if the interpretation doesn't come. He prays to God that God would show them mercy so that they wouldn't be destroyed by showing the, them the interpretation of the dream. So he's, he's actually submitted to Nebuchadnezzar to go wanting to show him the interpretation. He's not trying to, he's not trying to overthrow him or anything. But at the same time, he totally agrees with them that in verse 27, he says, no one can do what you said they can do. So he's, he's, not, he's not necessarily, he actually agrees kind of with both of them is actually what it looks like. But the, where he gets his wisdom from isn't from those wise men and it isn't from Nebuchadnezzar. He seeks God and God gives him the, the answer, the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. This is what I think we can glean from how Daniel is used in, in that uh, in comparison to the, the wise men and enchanters of his time. First of all, I think there's several examples of civil disobedience in Scripture and godly examples of civil disobedience in Scripture. While this isn't one of them, there are plenty. But I don't see any examples of civil dishonoring in Scripture that are held up as examples of how God's people should be acting. See, think about Daniel's current situation. He is in a living nightmare. He has been kidnapped. His family likely murdered. His temple has been raided of all of its goods. He's been moved away, never to see anyone of his loved ones again. He's been brainwashed. And now he's being threatened with death for something he has not even been involved with. I mean, he's not, he's not in a good situation with his government. He's in maybe the worst. But he still goes to the king and seeks to try to show him the interpretation of his dream. There's this, he, he doesn't have this toxic attitude of hatred and spite and malice towards his government. He wants to be shown to be people of God that's shining brightly in the darkness. See, God puts us in dark times not to be overcome by them. That's not why we're put in dark times, to be overcome and snuffed out in dark times. He puts us in dark times to shine brightly as a light for his glory. And attitudes of, of fatalism and hatred and spitefulness towards our government, in practicality, denies the sovereignty of God that he could be used in such a wretched time as this or that he would that that there's any hope for his purposes in that time it's living as though the, that because this government is reigning there's nothing the good that's going to happen 
And that's not the truth. Christ is sitting on the throne. Christ has won. Christ is in control right now. He is our king as his people, as believers. He is our king, our true king. And he is getting his way. He has won. He has been victorious. And he wants to to show his glory through us in these dark times. So I think we can be instructed how God's people should live in light of God's victory in hard times the way he responds. But secondly, and I'd say even primarily the truth I, I think we should glean from this first, this first chunk of Daniel 2 is that God's truth is greater than the truth of the world. That he wanted, he set up the stage beforehand that Nebuchadnezzar called in everybody besides the Judeans and said, hey, show me the dream, and none of them could do it. They didn't have the answer. And God was the only one who had the answer. He, God wants us to look at the wisdom and the truth and the, the thoughts of this world, and he wants us to look at them deeply and to understand what's going on so that we can look at them and say, man, the truth of God is so much greater. God wants to put to shame the wisdom of the world. The foolishness of God is more wise than the wisdom of the world. He wants to show how much greater and more true his truth is than the truth that the world has. And that's... Yeah, that's totally what's going on here in Daniel chapter 2 as he shows he's the one who's, he's the only one who has that truth. It, it, call, it over and over again refers to God as the God of heaven, this God who knows all things. He's the one, only one who knows all that's hidden in the darkness. He is, and within him is the light. So he can actually see these mysteries that man cannot figure out. But then over and over again, after it calls him this God of heaven that knows all of these mysteries, it also calls him the revealer of mysteries. It says that God has revealed them to Daniel, and he's revealed them to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's revealed them for a purpose. And it's so highlighted how God has not only known the mysteries, but revealed them. God is the revealer of our truth. And that's so key to us in understanding the gospel, isn't it? Like, think about Jesus Christ. He is the word of God that dwelt among us. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to Father except through him, but they do know the truth because of him. When he dies for our sins, and he raises from the dead to give us freedom from our sins, he not only does the right and perfect and true thing, But then he shows it to us. He raises again and he goes to the disciples and he says, look at my hands, look at my side. I'm alive. See that I'm alive. And not only does he do that, but then he goes through the entire Old Testament to show them how he is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. A huge part of the gospel is that we can know it. That we can know the truth. How awesome is that? That not only do we have the truth that is so much greater than the truth of the world, the solution that is so much greater than the the solution that the world offers, but that we can actually know it. Your Bible is a proof of that. That God wants you to know His truth. He is the true one, the greatest truth, but He is the revealer of that truth as well. And so as you hear all of these opinions and are, that are grappling for your heart, know that they are, 
they, 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 are, they pale in comparison to the glory of the truth that God has given us. And that should be the primary thing that guides our hearts in making our decisions. So, then Daniel goes on to interpret the dream. Uh, let me pick back up in, uh, in verse 31 of chapter 2. It says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and exceeding, uh, of, of mighty and exceeding brightness, <clears throat> stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, <clears throat> to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so that the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, that it broke to in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel, a, gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Secondly, so we've seen that God's truth is greater than the truth of man. God's might is greater than the might of man. 
But God wants to be shown as greater than the rule of man. That's, that's our second point this morning. God is greater than the rule of man. So Daniel lays out the dream and its interpretation. He describes a large statue that uh, corresponds to the kings of the world that were to come. First is this head of gold, which he says is clearly Nebuchadnezzar. Then you've got the kingdoms to follow him, which seem to be pretty, pretty straight in line with uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire after it. Which, as a side note, think about this. We've just talked about how much truer the truth that, that comes from God is. That seems to be a clear-cut prophecy of like the next few hundred years, right? I mean, that's, that's just a demonstration of how true the truth of God is. That's pretty amazing. But Daniel uh, goes on to say that at that time when this iron kingdom is here, there's this giant rock that comes and smashes everything. First it smashes the feet, then it just obliterates, totally disintegrates everything, like chaff on the summer floor. And this rock is one that's not shaped by human hands. And this rock will not be defeated. And this kingdom of God that's being established will rule and will never be passed on from another, from, to another people. It shall stand forever. That rock is the most important part of this story. That rock is Jesus Christ, the king that rules in heaven. So let's look at that mountain, that rock. Let's, let's glean what we can learn from it as we look at the, the interpretation of this dream. It's not made by human hands. It's divine. It is God. It is God's rule. And this is, this is super important when we think about kings because it's, this is God's king coming to rule again. Um, and this king smashes all the other kings and obliterates them. And this has been the pattern God wants us to think of kings in since kings in Israel were established. Think about in 1 Samuel when, the, when they were asking for Saul to be king. And that, that, Saul, that God was, allowed Saul to be king and allowed to show what, what a, his failure of king looked like versus the, 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 man of God, the man after God's own heart, David. There was this comparison, this juxtaposition between David and Saul where the, the king that was after God's own heart versus the king that was not, uh, was that, that, that the king after God's own heart was elevated. But then even David, he goes on to fall. And then in 2 Samuel, we see that there is another eternal king promised to come from his line in Christ. So all of the kings of Israel were shown then, based on that promise, to look at them and say, you know, as, as they would see different kings coming, they'd say, nope, not that one. He failed. He's not this eternal king. Nope, not that one. And to see how they're insufficient to be that eternal promised king that was coming. God wants us to look at kings and rulers of this earth and to say, nope, not good enough. Not good enough. That's why the mountain obliterates the statue. Because they're not good enough. They're not great enough. So we are supposed to look at the rulers of this world and see how insufficient they are to do what our king has and will do. No matter who is set on the throne, no matter what our government looks like, the primary purpose as it pertains to our true king in heaven is to look at that 
person, no matter how much we agree or disagree with them, and say they are not good enough to be my, my true king. And at, at worst, in the worst situations, when the, are there, the king acts as godless as possible, as our ruler acts as godless as possible, we can look at them and say, they, they cannot be the good, true king. My, good, my king who is ruling and who will rule for the rest of eternity is greater. And he is good. And he will solve all of these problems. And he will get justice for what this evil king is doing right now. And at best, when our king obeys and follows God and does things that seem to be pleasing to God, we can say, wow, that's an awesome picture of how our future king will actually solve these problems eternally, forever. But our, our perspective, our glasses, our worldview as we view the rulers of this world should be primarily to see how they are not Christ and how our eternal king is coming. So as you look at those things, I'd like we talk about in our current climate right now, Often we put, I know I do, put a lot of stake in positions to fix things, organizations to fix things, legislation or legislators to fix problems that I see going on in the world. And I get frustrated when I see things happening that don't seem to be in line with what I what I think are God's agendas. But Let's say that that candidate in November that you don't want sitting on our U.S. throne gets elected. Is God thwarted? Has he lost? Let's say more legislation comes that is godless and oppresses his people and, and, oppresses, and oppresses the innocent. Is, is God thwarted? Is our plan stopped? You remember what we just read about that rock? It says... That the, that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor a kingdom that shall be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the other king, kingdoms and bring them to an end. This kingdom cannot be conquered. It does not lose. God has not lost. No matter what happens. He is going to get his way. He will end the murder of innocent, unborn children. He will end racial hatred and bring his people together unified in his name. He will judge evil kings and kingdoms. He will bring them to an end and he will reign in justice and glory forever. And that cannot be stopped. And he is the only one who can do it. There is no one else who can fix those problems. No matter how hard we try, no matter how great the solution may be, we should never expect those problems to go away because guess what? There's only one that will finally end those problems. And it's Christ when he does end them. He is the only eternal solution to the problem of our sin. And he will not lose. So should we be apathetic? Because Christ is the only one who can solve the current issues going on in our world. Should we just check out of politics and say, whatever happens, happens, Christ is going to win. 
No, that's not what I'm saying. Absolutely not. Because God here and now uses us and empowers us just like he empowered Daniel to be vessels of his glory. That we should depend on God for his truth and his power, confident in the rule of Christ forever. Confident that he will not be defeated no matter our outcomes. And we should go head on into the issues of this world, not armed with political solutions that have been suggested to us, but armed with a, primarily the, the thoughts of, and the power of God. We should go headstrong into the world to show to be vessels of God's glory in these dark times. And when we are empowered with God's truth and his might for his purposes, there's no one on earth that can stop that. So, we live in the most divided times many of us have ever experienced, and the world will undoubtedly continue to try to woo us all with its ultimatums that the only way good will come and solutions will happen is if their agendas move forward and their representatives are elected. The world will constantly feed you stories of how evil triumphs over good and lead you to believe that it's already gone and, and to hell in a handbasket. But Christ is on the throne and will not and cannot lose. And we can be filled with this confidence from his word this morning. Uh, let me pray for us.